you would please turn in your Bibles first to Matthew chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 22 to 29. Matthew 12, verses 22 to 29. will be our scripture reading, and then our sermon passage is all of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. It's a long chap- chapter, it's a, it's a lengthy one. I looked at the pos- into the possibility of, of trying to divide it up, but I thought it would be best uh, to just take it all in one lump. And so we'll be moving a little more swiftly through the verses than perhaps you're used to, but I think it's best to take this as a, as a single unit rather than trying to split it up. So Matthew 12, verses 22 to 29 is our scripture reading, and then our sermon passage is 1 Samuel chapter 17. Brothers and sisters, a reminder to you that the Word of God is about to be read. God's Word is more precious than gold. It is far more precious to us than any material or spiritual blessing. God has given to us His Word. He speaks to us in His Word. And so you don't have to listen for God's Word when it is read, you simply must listen to it because it is the Lord speaking to you. Matthew 12, verses 22 to 29. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, turning to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. 
But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Aminadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brother, to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul, when they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines, and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion of the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor 
He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come with me with, to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give you the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with his sword, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face, face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our most gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for what it teaches us about your people of old. We're thankful for what it teaches us about King David about King Saul, about the Israelite people, even about the Philistines and their champion Goliath. But especially, O Lord, and most importantly, we are thankful for what your word teaches us about you, what you have done, the victories that you have accomplished on our behalf, the battles that you have fought and won. 
Lord, we pray that both through the reading of your word that we have just heard, and now through the preaching of your word, that you would spur us on by your spirit to worship you even more, to know you even better, to become even more grateful, more thankful for everything that you have done on behalf of your people, of which we are graciously allowed to be a part. We thank you, O Lord, and pray now for the blessing, your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone, it seems, even the most biblically illiterate people in our society, is at least somewhat familiar with the story of David and Goliath. It has reached mythical status. It has become shorthand for any type of contest or battle between the little guy and the behemoth. And in that way, it's become used in a similar way to the Cinderella story, which stands for any kind of rags-to-riches story uh, that we read about, that we watch. Well, in 1 Samuel 17, we have David, the little guy, the hero, going up against a real giant of a man, Goliath, who stood several feet taller than him, or anyone else for that matter. Now, usually when the story of David and Goliath is co-opted by those within the wider society, it's in the, the context of sports, or it's in a news story about some small business that's taking on a corporation. People love a good underdog story. And it's even better, there's great rejoicing when the, when the little guy takes down the big guy. Now as you're aware, these uses of the battle between David and Goliath as a metaphor miss the point of the biblical narrative. But many story Bibles and many Christian treatments of this story miss the point as well. It's not just the secular part of our society that uses this story in an inappropriate way, that wrenches it out of its context and draws incorrect conclusions. We Christians are just as prone to do so, and the books that we read that are written by Christians are just as prone to do so as well. It often sounds a lot like, God looks out for the little guy. So no matter what the giants are that you're facing in your life, God will look after you. But believe it or not, the primary character in this story is David. And the biggest giant in this story is not Goliath. Nor is the primary character in this story Saul. The main character of this story, the giant in this story, is the main character and the main giant in the, the entire Bible, God himself. And what this passage teaches us is that the Lord is the hero that we need, and he is the hero that we do not deserve. As we make our way through the sermon today, I would ask you to consider this, to keep this in mind. The odds are ever in the church's favor because God has defeated our greatest enemy through the life and the death and the resurrection of his only begotten son. Let me say that again. The odds are ever in the church's favor because God has defeated our greatest enemy through the life and the death and the resurrection of his only begotten son. The sermon has three parts. The first part is living in fear. The second part is anti-hero, and that's anti with an E at the end, not an I. So not anti-hero, but anti-hero. 
And the third point is binding the strong man. So again, living in fear, anti-hero, and binding the strong man. So let's look first at point number one, living in fear. One aspect of God's anointing upon the king and the concomitant rushing of the spirit of God upon the king is the endowment of the king with military might. We saw this with Saul in chapter 11. After he had been anointed and endowed with the spirit in his defeat of the Ammonites, And we see it again in chapter 17, this time with David. The spirit of the Lord has has departed from Saul. Saul has, in a sense, lost his anointing in in the spiritual sense. And it is the spirit of the Lord who now rests upon David. And the spirit of the Lord is the one who gives the kings of Israel their amazing ability to defeat their enemies in battle. And so, as it turns out, it is God who is doing the fighting through his king, through his anointing, anointed. Saul, having lost the anointing of the Lord, was no longer fit to be the commander-in-chief. And it showed. The Philistines had invaded Judah. They were gathered near a town called Soko, which was about 14 miles due west of Bethlehem. They're pretty far into the land of Judah. And the Philistines had what they considered to be their ultimate weapon. The giant, Goliath, who stood over nine feet tall. It was almost as if this man was built to intimidate and cause people to cower in fear. Now, the Septuagint has a slightly different reading on Goliath's height, on his stature. And so there are many folks who have gone with that. And, and, and that understanding is, is rather than, uh, than uh, 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 being nine and a half feet tall, he's closer to six and a half feet tall. But when you read the description of, of Goliath's armor, the description of his weapons, this was clearly a giant of a man. He was huge. And there's no need to think that it was impossible for someone in that day and age to be that tall. There have been other men who were nearly as tall, even in in the last 100 to 150 years. But even before the Philistines and the Israelites squared off at the Valley of Elah, Israel had succumbed to fear. They were essentially leaderless. In the words of one writer, the condition of Saul's mind was already beginning to weigh heavily upon the people. They gradually realized that deliverance would not come from him. And so for 40 days, the Israelite army and the Philistine army squared off from one another on differing sides of the valley of Elah, on opposing mountainsides, and Israel did nothing. Their king did not lead them, and no one in the army, no no leader of the army, no commander of troops took the initiative to go out and to fight against the Philistines. Now Saul had at least taken his army out to meet uh, the Philistine army in the valley of Elah. But neither he nor any of his warriors were willing to fight the champion of the Philistines. We've already mentioned this, Goliath's stature was impressive. He was a giant of a man. And I have to admit, after having been home recently, that I felt short standing next to my nephews who were only a few inches taller than I am. But Goliath was nearly four feet taller than the average American man, which is five feet nine inches. 
And the description of his armor and the description of his weapons, as we've already said, they show that this is something that only a massive man could carry. But I suspect that the Israelite army was already dispirited and demoralized before Goliath showed himself because they saw their king's failure to lead. Saul and, as a consequence, Israel, they were all living in fear, not of God, but of man. And as Proverbs 29.25 says, a verse that we, uh, that we saw a few weeks ago, it says, The fear of a man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. When we don't have a proper fear of the Lord, we become afraid of the smallest things. But it needs to be said that those who don't fear the Lord at all have the most to fear, both in this life, but especially in the life to come. But sometimes even we Christians live like Saul is our king rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. We are very afraid of what we perceive to be threats against us. And we need to remember that it is not a human being who is our king. And it is not even we ourselves who fight our battles. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. We also need to point out that Israel's enemies were, of course, emboldened by Saul's lack of leadership and Israel's fear. Saul should have led the charge against the Philistines. Instead, he let one man, albeit a giant, stop up what could have been the flood of Israel's army against the Philistines. And so we read in verse 10 that Goliath openly challenges Saul and the Israelites. He says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And we read that he's done this over and over again, twice a day for 40 days. And instead of becoming incensed at this challenge, verse 11 says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Even with Saul's promise of riches, even with the promise of his daughter's hand in marriage, even with the promise that his family, the man's family, the man who defeated Goliath, that his family would become part of the nobility, that they would become free, that they would no longer owe uh, any kind of tribute to the king. Even with all of this, not one of the men of Israel's army was willing to go out and fight against Goliath. Not one of them trusted enough in the Lord that he would be the one to defeat this giant. And so when David expressed his surprise at the reward that Saul had offered and the fact that no one was willing to fight the Philistine, in verse 26 he asked, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David seems to understand. David remembers what everyone else in the army of Israel has forgotten. They aren't Saul's army. They aren't even, for that matter, Israel's army. They are the army of the living God. And he has led them into victory against far greater odds than this. That takes us to the next point in the sermon, Anti-Hero. <clears throat> David stands in stark contrast with everyone else from Israel who is depicted in this story. Even David's brothers are incredulous at what he has said. In verses 28 and 29, Eliab, David's eldest brother, became angry at David and he said, why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Eliab, even Eliab, David's own brother, presumes to know David's heart. But it was their father, Jesse, who had sent David to the Israelite camp. 
He'd send him with food for the brothers. He'd send him with, with, with food and payment to the commander of their unit. And so it looks like perhaps Eliab is embarrassed by his own fear when it's contrasted with David's courage. But what was it that gave David courage? What was it that was different about David from everyone else? What did he have that his brothers and the rest of Israel did not have? The only difference that David, the only thing different about David, the only thing that he had that was different from anyone else was the anointing of the Lord by the hands of the prophet Samuel to be king. And because of this, the spirit of the Lord had rushed upon David. He was described in chapter 16 as ruddy and handsome, but other than that, his physical stature isn't described. It isn't that he's some huge man, some some massive bodybuilder of a man. It's not that he has had a vast experience fighting against Israel's enemies. He has no experience fighting against their enemies. The difference with David is that he has been divinely endowed to fight for Israel. But as Israel's champion, he hardly could have been more different than Goliath. And David gets to become Israel's champion because the words that he said in front of his brother, which he repeated to others in Israel's camp, these words made their way to Saul. And Saul then sent for David to appear before him. And in verse 32, in addressing Saul, David told him, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. This is an acknowledgement by David that Saul knows him. Your servant. I've been serving you in, in your court, playing the harp for you. I'll go and fight this man. And Saul tries to dissuade David. He tells David, you don't have any experience fighting. You're a youth. doesn't mean that David is a child, as is so often depicted in in children's stories. But he's a young man. He's an inexperienced man. He hasn't fought any battles. But David tells Saul of the various times that he fought against predators who tried to steal his father's sheep. The ways in which he killed lions and bears in order to keep the sheep safe. And then he tells Saul in verse 37, Yahweh, the Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David isn't citing these instances from his past to show how great he is. He's not citing these instances from his past to to, to show the reason that he has confidence in himself to go into battle with this giant of a man. He's citing this because he has past experience with the faithfulness of the Lord, with the protection of the Lord. He has faith that God is going to protect him with this Philistine, this giant, in the same way that he protected him against lions and bears. David understands that he won't be the one fighting against Goliath. Yahweh will. And so he has nothing to fear. Goliath cannot do any ultimate harm to David. And that is because no enemy can defeat the living God. Now, of course, Goliath might wound David. He might even kill David. But Goliath does not have the power to crush David's soul. He cannot cast him into the pit of hell. David understood Romans 8, 31 to 39, a thousand years before it was written. He knew what these words meant. He didn't have to worry about what Goliath might do to him because he knew that God would defeat his greatest enemy. Saul 
offered David his armor and his weapons, but David, after trying them on, uh, t- trying them on, told Saul in verse 39, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. Now many have assumed that it was because the armor was far too big for David because he's just a boy. But the text doesn't indicate that at all. David simply did not want to go into battle in gear that he wasn't trained to use or to wear. Much of modern military training, I think we can assume that there had to be some similarities with this in the ancient world. Much of modern military training is getting the troops used to having the weapons and the battle gear with them everywhere they are. So that they're not familiarizing themselves with it on the battlefield. And so in boot camp, our M16 rifles were issued to us about two months before we ever actually fired them the first time. We took these rifles with us almost everywhere we went. We slept with them cable locked to our bunks in the barracks. If we were out in the field in a training exercise, sleeping in our sleeping bags, we had them with us inside the bag. David simply wants to take into battle against Goliath what he knows, what he's used to, what he's trained with. And so verse 40 says David took his staff and he chose five smooth stones and he put them in his pouch and he approached the Philistine with his sling in his hand. Now David here does not look much like a king going into battle, even though he's already been anointed as a king. Saul's armor would have given him at least the appearance of kingliness, but it would have left him unable to fight effectively against this man. But David here is already showing himself to be a type of the king who was yet to come. He was, in a sense, a shadow of the future king. The king who would reign forever. The king who would descend from him. The king who, like David here, had no form or majesty that we should look at him. That future king, too, would be mocked. He would be laughed at. He would be scorned because of his appearance because of his lack of kingly stature. David came before this future king, David's greater son, whom he would call Lord, and David set the stage for his eventual appearance in Israel. And that leads us to the third point of the sermon, binding the strong man. When David began to approach Goliath, verses 41 and 42 says that the Philistine moved forward and came near to to David and his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. David was nothing in the eyes of this man. Goliath had no fear of David. Goliath had another man with him, his, his armor-bearer. He went into this battle completely confident in the outcome. And then Goliath mocked David, and he said in verse 43, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And then Goliath cursed David by his gods. Goliath did not merely denounce David. He didn't merely mock or deride David. He was mocking and deriding Yahweh. Not because David was God in the flesh in the way that his greater son would be, but simply because David was God's king. And Israel was Yahweh's people. And God took it very personally when his people were threatened by an enemy. 
Goliath ended his speech with a threat to David, saying that he would give David's flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And now it's David's turn to speak, which he does in verses 45 to 47. Goliath Goliath has this massive sword and he's got this huge spear and he's got an impressive set of armor. But David has something that Goliath does not have. He has the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. David tells Goliath that Yahweh will deliver Goliath into his hands, that he will strike Goliath down and cut off his head. And he will not only give not only Goliath's body to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, but he will also give the bodies of the whole army of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And he will do this, he says, so that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all the assembly may know that Yahweh saves not with sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David understands something that Goliath does not. Something that Saul had long forgotten. Something that the whole Israelite army had forgotten. He will no more fight this battle with Goliath than the sword in Goliath's hand will fight this battle. The battle, David understands, David knows, David is convinced of this fact. The battle is God's to fight. And David is simply the instrument, the weapon in God's hand. In in reality, this is a contest between a mere mortal, Goliath, and the living and true God. And because of that, Goliath doesn't stand a chance. And David knows this with all his heart. He doesn't doubt it for a second. David knows that he has no business, humanly speaking, going into battle against this this man. He's not trusting in the strength of his own arm. He's trusting in the Lord because he knows that the battle belongs to the Lord. What David told Goliath comes to pass exactly like he said it. Goliath approached David from one side of the valley and David ran to Goliath from the other side. David took out one stone from his bag and he slung it at Goliath and struck it struck him on his forehead. And we read that the stone sank into Goliath's forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Now Goliath here is as good as dead and the text in a sense pronounces him dead already. But then again, when David strikes off, when he cuts off Goliath's head with his own sword, there we read that David killed Goliath. There is a metaphor there. This is a literal, uh, actual, historical event that took place in the history of God's people. And yet there's a way that we can understand this and apply it in our own lives today. That Satan is as good as dead. He has been defeated. But his head hasn't quite been, hasn't yet been chopped off. He is defeated. All he can do at best is writhe around a bit and cause some chaos. His end is certain. It is guaranteed. And so David took Goliath's massive blade because he didn't have his own sword and he used it to finish off, off Goliath. And so he cut off his head, which he subsequently carried to Saul. And that's a detail that most children's story Bibles conveniently leave out. And just as David had told Goliath, the bodies of his comrades in arms were given up to the birds and the beasts as well. When they saw what had happened to their hero, the Philistines fled and the army of Israel found its courage all of a sudden because they had a king now and they chased after them. They didn't know that they had a king. But they knew 
deep within their hearts that they had a king in Israel. The strong man had been bound. The kingdom of Israel was now more fully able to expand. And this is the kind of activity that Jesus was up to when he came to establish his kingdom. After Jesus had cast out demons who possessed a blind and a mute man, the Pharisees said that Jesus had done so by the power of the devil, by the power of Beelzebul. But Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 12 that he isn't casting demons out by the power of the devil. He is binding the strong man, the devil, in order to build his kingdom. Jesus was binding the strong man so that he could plunder his house, so that he could set free the devil's captives. And that's exactly what happened here in our text. The strong man has, in a sense, probably to put it better, he has been unbound. He's been undone. His head has been severed from his body. Now we read in verse 54 that David took Goliath's head to Jerusalem, which must have been after he had taken it to Saul to give to Saul absolute proof of his victory. But he put Goliath's armor in his tent as a trophy of battle. And because Saul had promised his daughter in marriage to the one who defeated the Philistine champion, because he'd promised to make that man's family part of the nobility, making his father's house free in Israel, because he'd promised to give that man riches, Saul asks several times about the family of David. This could be due to Saul's increasing madness. It could also be due to the fact that he wants to make it publicly known who this man's family is. And Abner, of whom Saul inquired about David, brings David before the king because he doesn't know the answer. And and David has Goliath's head in his hand. And Saul asks David whose son he is, to which David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. And so though Saul already knew David, David had been playing in, uh, in Saul's court, his harp in Saul's court, he has now formally announced to the army of Israel who David and his family were. David is that day setting the stage for the day that, the Lord rather, is setting the stage that day for the day that David will become king. Ultimately, God is setting the stage for the day that his son will come as king. He's preparing the way for the son of David and the son of God to come and to begin building his kingdom. Jesus not only bound Satan, Jesus has defeated Satan. Jesus has defeated his army through his resurrection from the dead. And so this is what we must remember. The chief enemy that you have in this life is the enemy of your souls. The enemy who, if he had the power in him to do it, would destroy you, would rip you apart like a a prowling lion, as Peter puts it. But Satan is powerless to do any true and lasting harm. Jesus has defeated the reigning power of sin in you and me, indeed all his people. And the Holy Spirit is dealing with the remaining sin that we have. And so we no longer need to live in spiritual fear. In fact, we no longer need to live in fear of of physical damage to our bodies. Doesn't mean we don't take precautions. It doesn't mean that we try. Uh, doesn't mean we don't try to be wise about what we do, how we conduct ourselves. But we don't need to live in fear. We don't need always to be afraid of what might happen, because Jesus Christ has fought the battle. 
He has defeated all his and our enemies. And we have been set free to live for him. The greatest hero of the Bible is the living triune God. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will always and forever be under his protection. And if something should happen to your life, if your life should come to an end, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you have the certain knowledge that you will go to be with him. That you will live with him forever in eternity. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. That is the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to trust in you. We pray, dear Lord, that when we are facing hardship, when we are struggling, when we are facing uh, worries and doubts, when we are confronted with threats to our person, we pray, dear Lord, that you would help us by your Spirit to trust in you. We pray that you would remind us that we have been given the same Spirit that David had. And that you have given us victory over our greatest enemy. You've given us victory over sin and death. And these things no, no longer reign in our lives. Please help us, dear Lord, both to remember that we have been set free, to remember that we have been washed, to remember that we have been given new life, but also, dear Lord, help us to walk in that new life. Help us out of gratitude to bear the fruit of obedience. We pray, dear Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray that we would walk in humility with you and that we would submit to you. And we pray this all in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.